at the end of life of those products and what these products contained is continues to be still toxic, causing great exposure, especially to those recyclers who are often very poor workers. Especially if you're recycling in India, then people who get exposed are the poorest of the poor, they are women and the children. So it's really a commentary on how little attention we've paid to the flip side of technology advancement. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for The Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. Before we dive into today's podcast, we have a Restart Radio announcement. We want to hear your thoughts about Restart Radio, both on the live Resonance FM radio shows and podcasts like this one. So please head over to therestartproject.org forward slash radio hyphen survey and help us to make this your Restart Radio. In today's episode, I speak to Ravi Agrawal. We connect up over the internet between my office in Lancaster and his in New Delhi. Ravi does lots of different things, things which apparently might be disparate and unconnected, but in fact, as you'll hear in our conversation, these things all cross over and intertwine and are often parts of the same way of thinking rather than different binary ideas like science versus art or activism versus life. The conversation goes to all kinds of places, and even though the initial interest from Restart's point of view is in the environmental justice work that Ravi does with the NGO Toxics Link, which he founded in India, all of the areas that Ravi talks about offer insights into each other and make up a wider picture. When we go into detail on the work that Toxics Link is doing, there's some quite horrifying information about the impact of e-waste on the bodies of workers and other human beings. But as well as touching on some of the horror stories, there's plenty of hope and optimism within Ravi's reflections, experiences and insights. My name is Ravi Agarwal. I live in New Delhi. I practice as an artist and also a director of an environmental not-for-profit called Toxics Link. So you describe yourself on your website and stuff like that as an artist, photographer, environmental campaigner, writer and curator, which are quite a few different kinds of things all mixed together. Well, I think it's just a passage of time. And I started as a photographer when I was 12 years old and it still remains uh, the core of my artistic practice. Sometime down the middle, I went through a completely another kind of education because when I was young, there was no place you could go to uh, to learn photography in India. So I trained as an engineer and had an engineering career, but always was doing photography alongside. And at some point, I gave it all up because I was got really interested in contributing something to the environmental issues about 30 years back. Around the same time, I also had my first one-person show as a photographer. And somehow these uh, interests merged because my concerns about what I was seeing in the ecological sphere also became the place where I got interested in where my camera got pointed. And also writing came along. I used to write journalistically, but then also academically. These things just grew out of different ways of expression. And a lot of my current work 
aspects or thinking in any of the spheres is about the state of nature, uh, the ecological discourse, what's happening in the non-human, so to say. They all have very different forms because, as you know, if you are part of a not-for-profit, you are trying to make real change on the ground. And as an artist, you have a very different creative and exploratory space where you can think of many kinds of different ideas. And my writing extends and curation extends both to looking at photography as a particular medium of expression, but also looking at the crossovers of what we now call an expanded field of ecology, and that ecology becomes a foundational way in which we think about society. I can relate a lot to that. I, I also have quite a lot of different words on my website to describe what I do I kind of do art creative stuff but I also do documentary stuff and, and I work in lots of different mediums and so I can kind of relate to two elements of that like the picking up different things as you go uh, kind of unexpectedly but also how often lots of different words maybe to other people like how do they all fit together but actually they all make a lot of sense and there's a lot of crossover between them I mean have you found that these different mediums, these different job descriptions have fed into each other and kind of built them all up at the same time? They all inform each other. They're very different processes. And as acts, they reach to very different places, but they all inform each other. So they come from trying to understand a certain idea better, both by trying to be an agent of change, but also being reflective about it trying to see where uh, the new ideas are going about it and trying to contribute to them. So you sort of inhabit a whole sphere of thought and uh, the expression becomes different in different ways. And of course, when one practices, then uh, the expression has different audiences, has different mechanisms. From the outside, it can look quite complicated, but I think we all inhabit the world in many forms at the same time. And so it's very productive and very uh, satisfying for me to do all these things right and we're the common denominator aren't we as well that's the thing like we always bring ourselves into each project that we do and uh, the self that we bring has been informed by all the other ones Let's talk about Toxic Link and e-waste. What led you to start your NGO, Toxic Link? I was a bird watcher since I was very young in my teens, and I used to constantly offer bird walks as a pleasurable thing to do. At one point in time, I found that the forest I used to walk in, and these are forests in and around Delhi. Delhi was not so urbanized then. was going to be cut, and there's a huge swaths of forest, almost 8,000 hectares, and given to the development agency. And that just seemed like such a painfully bad idea that I met many of current people who were working in this area as activists and I said this is really a bad idea we have to stop it it led to my becoming an activist because I collaborated with people and started leading a campaign to protect the Delhi forest and you know thankfully it was successful and two years later we managed to pull out 8,000 hectares of land, which today would be impossible to do, in 1996 from development land to forest land, legally protected forest land. So it was that turning point where you could see that, that you had agency for change and you could actually make a difference. Slowly, I started volunteering myself to looking at waste issues and 
because as an engineer, I started doing some studies, analysis of it. And one thing led to another. So we were just three of us who got together as volunteers. We helped make a new law in India on medical waste. And then people said, you know, we'd like to fund what you're doing. So it became a small organization and it just started growing. E-waste, electronic waste came out of Toxics Link at the team's investigation. And the team grew over time to seeing what's happening on the ground. We started noticing a lot of electronics being recycled in the mid-2000s, 2003, 2002. And we started researching that and we made a report which became the first report in electronic waste in the country and led to major discussion because nobody had noticed that in India thus far. And it took us 10 years and that led to a national legislation in 2011, which became the first national legislation on electronic waste in India. It incorporated things we had not incorporated earlier, uh, which were things like extended producer responsibility. That means the companies which were selling the computers or the devices became responsible for collection instead of somebody else. So it became part of the producer responsibility. So all our work has been trying by seeing what's happening on the ground and researching what's happening on the ground and trying to make some first policy change, then practice changed after that. So that's the kind of standard practice the team follows. Toxic Sync has been for some time a 30-member team. It's a professional team with all kinds of expertise in it, including scientists, social scientists, researchers, young researchers, etc. So it's like a small organization. We are a watchdog to see what's happening, but we also try and prevent new solutions. Besides electronic waste, we work across the waste streams from plastics to municipal waste, biomedical waste, uh, radioactive waste, battery waste, etc. It's just something which grew from our investigation on the ground. And that continues to be our practice. I seriously, I really do believe that if you are really rooted to what you're doing, you will be able to find out what is happening because these evidences come from actually examining what's really happening on the ground and going up. Right, there's like a thread really between like you going out and enjoying watching birds to this like rowing organization and changing laws and all of those things. Like you just followed that thread along and it got you to where you are. That's really interesting. What are the toxic materials generally present in e-waste? So e-waste has a whole gamut of toxic materials. There are almost 50 of them with various ranges of toxicity. Some of the most toxic ones are, for example, flame retardants in plastics because you put these chemicals in plastics so that the casing of the monitor or the keyboard doesn't catch fire. And these are carcinogenic. That means if they're released and you're exposed to them, they have the potential to cause cancer. So it makes recycling of electronic plastics really, really difficult because the BFRs or brominated frame retardants get passed on. Others, which were classically more in the earlier tube-based monitors, was lead. Sometimes almost 30 to 40% of the weight of the monitor was just lead. And a lot of this lead landed up either in landfills or when you recycle the glass, broke it up and recycled it, it came out into the products you were recycling. And so lead has been was a very major concern. It continues to be a major concern because it's also used less and less so, but also used still in soldering inside on the circuit boards and inside the computer. Then there are all kinds of other heavy metals. You have arsenic in trace quantities, and also you have different kinds of chemicals which are there, both used for cleaning during the manufacture. In the other end, it's not only what's contained inside, which is about 50 or heavy metals and chemicals, but also if you don't recycle it properly, for example, a lot 
of the recycling which takes place in India is what we call in the small or the informal sector. They use very strong acid, aquaregia, which is a combination of nitric acid and sulfuric acid to melt the printed circuit board to get the copper out, which is valuable to those people. But also they have a lot of workplace exposures which take place. So it's really surprising that till a few years back, such attention was paid to what was technologically one of the most advanced industries in the world. They were making the most advanced devices. There was a promise of the newly digitalized uh, future. But at the end of life of those products and what these products contained is continues to be still toxic and the end of life is still continues to be causing great exposure, especially to those recyclers who are often very poor workers, especially if you're recycling in India, then people who get exposed are the poorest of the poor, they are women and the children. So it's really a commentary on how how little attention we've paid to the flip side of technology advancement. Right. I mean, the word e-waste sounds very innocuous, doesn't it? But when you describe it as like a hell of a lot of poisons all wrapped up together, that's a very different thing that we're talking about than what e-waste can sound like to people who aren't that informed about it. We've kind of touched a little bit on this already, but what are the potential damages of e-waste for human health and also for the for the wider environment that humans are inhabiting? Once these chemicals and heavy metals get released, they do not get released when the computer is intact while you're using it. But once it becomes end of life and goes for recycling or breaking, then many of these chemicals get released. And they all have different kinds of impacts on the body. For example, lead is a neurotoxin. It reduces the IQ of children permanently. And this is well documented. Or many of the computers have uh, plastic coated copper wires, especially polyvinyl class plastic or what they call PVC plastic coated copper wires. And often people just burn them to get the copper out. When you burn that, you release a class of chemicals called dioxins and furans. Dioxins and furans are the most toxic class of chemicals ever produced in the world and they all produced by man they don't occur naturally but they produce through processes of combustion of things like plastic dioxin was also the chemical used in agent orange in the vietnam war which has caused intergenerational effects so these are uh, heavy metals and they are pops and pops firstly they accumulate in the body they don't get released in the fat and they also get passed on from generation to generation. If you are a woman and you become a mother, then they can be passed on through breast milk because breast milk comes from the dissolving of fat in a mother's body and go to the next generation. The exposures could be very high. So depending on the chemical, some of them have such long-term impacts and these cause all kinds of problems. For example, chemicals like dioxin are called endocrine disruptors, which means they mimic hormones in the body and the cell cannot recognize if they're hormones or something else. And they have long-term growth effects. You can have long-term cancer impacts from that. Many kinds of deformities have been found in children of the Vietnam intergenerational war exposures, but also in animals, they found deformities in sexual organs. They, they occur in very low toxicity, very low levels of exposures. So you don't have to have a whole bunch of exposures. If you go to a recycling site in India, which is not a legal site, but there are plenty of them, then you'll find women who are young women who are working, burning these copper wires or breaking these computers. And you can imagine what kind of exposures they're carrying in the body and the kind of exposures they might be passing on when they have children. These are really actually quite horrific impacts. And because most of them don't cause instant death, so they're not toxicity levels which will kill you instantly, but far worse, they'll have long-term impacts. And because of that, it's taken longer to realize how toxic these chemicals are because they're not visible, they have no color, they have no uh, smell. 
Uh, you cannot know if the air is foul with them or not foul with them. This is now very high in the international agenda. The UN has been talking about it in the international conventions. Some of them have started being reduced, but we continue to find them in our electronics. Again, we've sort of touched a little bit on this, but in what ways is e-waste treated and recycled or reused in India? So the law came in 2012. The law really means that the companies have to set up a used computer or a used device collection system. You're supposed to only deliver to those systems which are going to go to proper recycling facilities. Now, on paper, that seems pretty fine. And we canvass for that. But what has been happening before the law and continues to happen now is that almost 96% of the electronic waste is recycled in the so-called informal sector, which really means that this waste is recycled in backyard shops or in small factory-like places by hand and broken just as I described a little while ago. Part of the reason is many of these companies have not set up the system they are required to do by law. And they have been reluctant to set it up because they feel it's going to be an extra cost to them. There have been recyclers which have been licensed in India, about 180 recyclers have been licensed because they are not really fully equipped. So what many of them are doing is like buying waste from the informal sector, making it legal, but recycling it back. So it's like business as usual kind of model. And Till recently, we used to also get a lot of electronic waste, which is imported. We have tracked waste from Europe and from the United States, which comes in because they come come in large containers. And because the customs are not checking each container, they come as misdeclared goods. So they'll come as secondhand computers, which are technically allowed. But actually, this is a container full of waste. And these are auctioned off and go in the market. So there's a lot of malpractice which continues to go on, which try and skirt the law. And if the law is fully followed, then a lot of these problems will disappear. So part of our challenge right now is to make sure that the industry follows the law completely. And it's really shocking to see that some of these industries are the biggest names in the world. So every name you can think of, because India is one of the fastest growing electronic markets in the world. It's growing at almost more than 26%. Companies which are following the law in Europe are not following it here because uh, it is just cheaper not to do it. So there's an element of double standards in this. So we continue to study to show the practice. We write to the companies, we bring it to the notice of the media and the notice of the government. And our attempt is to get better compliance so that the practice becomes safer than what it is. Right. And I guess it's the people who are the most affected by and the communities that are the most affected by all of this are the poorer communities where people don't see those communities as much anyway in the media, in those kind of places. So it's kind of almost an invisible issue. And that's one of the reasons you have to shine light on it. Would you say that's right? That's completely right. Because if you are really poor and vulnerable, despite you having citizens' rights, you have very little voice in the real world. And also you don't want to make too much noise because it's the only livelihood you have. So you just carry on despite the bad conditions and many of these people just carry on recycling them beside the bad condition. So I really feel it's up to us, those who are who have more capacity, who know better, who can really make systemic change. It's up to us to make sure that the conditions under which recycling takes place improves and that people are not hurt by doing it. We can have safer recycling. We can have more sustainable recycling than what we have right now. Right. I mean, and, and Toxics Link has engaged with policymakers and government authorities to try and find ways to respond 
to the issue of e-waste. What policy measures would you like to see implemented? And I guess, what's your experience of trying to affect policy been? So we have, over the last 30 years, been part of seven national legislations, and e-waste is one of them. The current electronic waste legislation we have is actually quite a good legislation because it incorporates all the best practices from the world over. However, you know, you can take a horse to the water, but you can't force it to drink. What we would like to see is the industry comply better that they walk the talk. And I really think that industry is a very important part of today's world. And we really need to see sustainable practices from them. The government on its part needs to be a little tougher on them because it's a very important industry in an economy like India. It's growing at 26%. It's a root industry for all digitization. We have rural digitization happening. It's a large country of 1.3 billion people. So digitization, mobile telephony, computerization is really a key to the future for getting all the development goals to the large population in India. Farmers are using mobile phones now to get pricing of the goods in the market. So it's, it's really a very important technology. However, there has to be responsibility with this technology. We are not at all against the companies marketing and bring the best products. But I think it's not enough to look at only the sales side of it. You also have to look at the sustainability side of it. So I think this is what we really would like to see, a better implementation, a better compliance, a better walking the talk by everybody, tougher implementation by the government. But life is not about policing alone. There has to be cooperation. So I think everybody has to see that it's one planet we live on and we owe it to everybody else. It's not just a matter of laws. It's a matter of actually the right ethics as well. It's all of the angles, isn't it? It's government, it's business, but it's also public understanding, like education around these issues. Yeah, there's so many different factors, but ultimately it's very simple that we all live in one world. And uh, if we want to carry on living in that world in the best possible way, then we need to make some changes. to focus on you for a little bit you currently have a solo show in Turin called Ecologies of Lost can you tell us a little bit more about that the show came about because the director of the Pav Museum in Turin invited me for a solo show there. I had first met him when he invited me to the Yunchuan Biennial in 2018. Yunchuan is a major museum in central China. And that was also to do with the idea of ecology. And he was kind enough to invite me to Turin. And what we are showing there is many bodies of my work over the last 20 years. A lot of my work has to do with examining how landscapes are inhabited, particularly landscapes are inhabited by people who live off the land. I'm more interested in people who live with nature, uh, for example, small farmers, small fishermen, small artisans, because I feel they have an experience of ecology which we all need to learn from. So it's got my work from the river landscape called Alien Waters, then it's got the work I did with uh, flowers in the river called Have You Seen My Flowers in the River? And it's got also some of the work I did with the extinction of vultures in South Asia, which is another horrific story. But also I've worked for four years with a fishing community in the south of India, looking at how the sea is changing for the small fishermen. So it's got a sampling of all the works. They range from photographs to writings to videos and uh, installation. And the photographs are both photographs of landscape, but also what we call constructed or installed photographs with installations in them. Over time, my language has expanded even in the photograph to all kinds of strategies to use. Everything becomes more and more interesting as you get into it. So uh, that's the show there. We're going back there 
next week for some talks. But it's been really interestingly put up, and I have to thank Marco Stoconi, who's the director of the museum, for, for doing that, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that you are kind of documenting natural spaces and the relationship between people who live with or on the land. But in order to do that, you're using technology, aren't you? You're using cameras to take pictures, to take video, and even writing these days. I mean, I don't know about your practice, but most people will write on a computer. Do you think there's a tension or a relationship between those two kind of facets of the work that you do? Actually, I grew up in a time when in even my tech- technical school we were not allowed to use computers we had to write i have still have those notebooks with me i have reams yeah. and reams of notebooks and i love writing on paper for some reason maybe i'm just you know grew up in a time where the tactility of the medium was really important it's the same way i love film and working in the dark room there's something very very immediate and real about it for me so i'm always carrying a notebook and a pen and for me even photographs are like a document so i'm photographing all the time and one thing about when when i'm writing or taking photographs and both which of which i call notes is that when i see them again it could be in the evening or could be a couple of days from then it almost reveals itself again to me i get to know what i wrote i got to know what i photographed it comes to you in a different way than what you were doing then so it starts as you are getting into a different meaning space and the way i work is that the work grows with with my relationship to to the work itself so as i visit my work my work grows and ideas come from the work which suppose i'm working on a, on something on a landscape that landscape grows in my mind and the same thing as i write the writing grows as it grows on itself right. so to me it's like a little plant and the only way to do it is an exploration it's just a process and i i cannot predict what's going to happen at the end of it but the process is so enjoyable for me that i enjoy of course at the end of it hopefully it turns into something which i can show but i enjoy the process so much that if i did not i wouldn't be able to do it actually so i have to enjoy every bit of it uh, and the creative process as you know dave can be very very enjoyable it's so personally satisfying it's not only the end product it's the process itself so i think this is really what keeps me going with it the act of taking a photograph the act of writing something is really something which is immediate it's like breathing it's immediate for me and i i really savor that it's lucky somebody calls me an artist i feel very honored that people say okay i'm an artist that they accept me as an artist they want to show my work but i feel even if they didn't want to i'd still be doing it because it's so pleasurable right i mean i can relate to a lot of that and i, I mean i also i also started off writing by hand and in fact i i, I find I can write a lot of things on computers, but I can't write poetry on computers. I have to write poetry by hand. You seem concerned with our place in the cosmos and question the notion that we can heal or fix nature by simply fixing markets. Are these hard questions to work through? These are very hard questions to work with because we seem to believe that the world we are in right now is fixed. that it is the way it's supposed to be what we've forgotten is that the world we are in right now is actually a world of our own making and it could be another world and we could make another world it's very humanly possible if you look at the history of ideas it's a progression of these ideas through which we've come to the point we have right now there's nothing stopping us from going to another point there's no barrier to it except our own imagination or except the fact we have already entrenched ourselves our own entrenchments so i think the idea of the cosmic place of everything is very important because it opens up the possibility of what human society and human life is and 
can be. So in a sense, we have become our own limits to our own future. Whereas we are quite limitless, I feel. You know, because I, I train in the sciences very well, I know that even our laws of materiality, of the material laws of physical chemistry, is a particular way to understand the world. If I had completely different way of understanding the world, those laws, I would see the world with a different light. So these are all perceptions and logical. They're not up in the air. They are very logical and precise, but they are a slice of something. You know, I'm often reminded of the elephant in the room that we all seem to be describing what it is in some ways in our own perspective, but we don't know what the whole thing is. And some philosophers write about it, like Timothy Morton or the people who work with object-oriented ontology talk about the thing in itself, you know, about the nature is a word which we have created to deal with the non-human. So I feel how we think about something is very important. And I believe if we can think about something in a certain way, we can think about something in another way also. The human brain has complete possibility to do that. So the possibilities of the human life are endless. The question is, do we have the will and the open-mindedness to do it? When I think of the cosmos, I'm thinking of who we are in the world and who we can be. So if you think of, I just talked about the vulture, the South Asian vulture. In the 1980s, we had 40 million South Asian vultures in in South Asia, 40 million. In the next 20 years, they went down to about 200,000. We had a 99% decimation of the South Asian vulture because of one pill, which they used to give the livestock. When the vulture ate that livestock, it destroyed the kidneys. It's one, just a painkiller, which caused it. A species which had lived, you could see it on Cleopatra's crown, lived through all evolution. We killed it in 20 years. I find this is an incredibly revealing story of how destructive we can be. In the same way, we can be completely constructive with the same force. So what it means to be human, is this only the idea of the body as a self, or do we also think of inhabiting the world as a community, a community of not only humans, but also humans and non-humans? Do we yeah. see the non-human as part of our way of who we are? These are the ethical and more than ethical, it's almost ontological questions of, of who we are in a sense. So I think of the cosmos as reminding us of our endless possibilities. When we think of moving ahead, we also have to think that only we are stopping ourselves from making this world a better place. Nobody else is. It is just us. And what we have done, we can undo if we think differently about it. So I think I cannot do this kind of work when I'm doing toxic link work. It has to be research policy. But as an artist, there are no barriers. I can propose what I think should be proposed across boundaries of discipline. So that's very, very freeing for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I also relate to that. I do other podcasts that are more kind of fiction and creative. And uh, yeah, it's great to be able to make something that can say anything and explore everything rather than documentaries where, where I have to like be documenting what someone said and constructing a narrative that fits a framework and, and all of those kinds of things that are important too, but less exciting as a creator. <laughs> How is your creative work received both in India and beyond India? I think there are many kinds of art worlds, there are many kinds of environmental worlds, there are many, many worlds within these spheres. And they have different receptions. You know, I've been working on the ecological question now as an artist for 
more than 25 years. And it's really interesting to see that suddenly the question is something which many other people are talking about, the ecological condition. And even in the Toxic Slink work, I remember one of the first newspaper articles I wrote in 2006 was about this small plastic bags called carry bags. It was called carry a bag, not a carry bag. Now in 2018, it's become a UN question of plastics, that we have too many plastics everywhere. So I really believe that if you follow what you want to do, if I place myself in what I think the question is for me, then that's the best I can do. And if I persistently and with full confidence in my query persist in it, then I think at some point, people start paying attention to it. For me, it's very gratifying, actually. And actually, I feel honored that people notice any of the works which I do. And I have been lucky because I've been part of some important shows for some time and people want to talk to me about it. But I think for me, the question is more than... And I also don't want to be caught up in one particular kind of art practice. I want to be lodged in the question which I'm interested in. And what comes out of it is something which is i can i can i can say it this is what i'm doing it's a constantly changing scenario the art world also re- is receiving different kinds of works uh, when i was much younger both photography was not very well accepted by the art world as a practice nor was the idea of the ecological question did not exist in the art world only in the last 10 or 12 years that people have started talking of art and ecology, and especially because of the climate change problems and all that. So I think everything is shifting around. I'm lucky I'm, I've been interested in this question and people are noticing it, I feel. How do you balance the artistic practice that you do with your fact-focused kind of activism? It's a very difficult thing. It takes a lot of physical time, but I also have over time created separations because the processes are very different for me. Toxic Slink is now, after a lot of effort, a very professionally run organization. Early days, I decided that I will get out of this idea of what they call the founder syndrome, which many small organizations continue to have, and created a leadership model from an entrepreneurial model. So it's leadership driven. I am one of the leaders, okay, one of the founding leaders, but it's also got other leadership in the organization. And I contribute in various ways to it, but I, for the last couple of years, don't do the operational running of that organization, of, of the space. But I am doing the envisioning, doing all the big policy issues when I, when, when important. But to me, the separations are actually very enriching because suppose I'm involved in reading some reports on what's happening in the policy world on species extinction or climate. It informs me a lot. And, you know, a lot of the art, I think probably other artists do it as well. But for me also, it is learnt intuition. When the information you have becomes second nature to you, then somehow forms appear. So I think it's actually very productive. And that's the reason I am able to do it because there is no clear distinction in my head. So, so long as I'm not doing the daily running, it's very enriching, I feel, to do both. And my writing also, I'm writing alongside. Somehow it's, it's as everything else in my life, just built on each other. It was completely unpredictable. I had not at all set out when I was a young man in my life that this is what I'll be doing. But this is how it's just become step by step yeah i mean that's that, again uh, there's a lot i can relate to you there and uh yeah i mean it's definitely 
a mistake that a lot of kind of creative people or artistic people make of like trying to do all of the the non-artistic stuff that we're not necessarily as good at like the organization etc so i can i can understand why you'd want to bring other people into that and i think that's that shows a lot of sense and a humbleness really because one of the things that creative people can can be is very protective of their ideas and their sort of position within things and it sounds like you're not doing that you're you're sort of saying no i have a limit of what i know and i can draw on all of these things that i'm doing but at the same time it's not just on me to do this important activism it's it's a collective process yeah and as you know you know as we all know if you're an artist every artist has his own style own way and nobody can really copy that you know even if you pick up an idea you cannot be that artist it's a very particular thing one should have no fear about it i think nobody can be the artist one is nobody can play music like one one can it's you it's yours i don't have any such fear it's not difficult you saying humble it's not difficult at all to be humble because there's such great people around you you know you look around the world and people are doing such fantastic work in all spheres i think if you just look around it's very easy to be humble because i think people know so much you look at the way people are researching what they're writing what the kind of works they're producing how they're putting themselves out for activism how they're putting their own lives at threat i mean humbleness is not even a word it's just it's just there you you just feel that People who are doing things are doing great things. Ravi believes that we can change the narrative. He's optimistic in many ways about what can be achieved, despite having done work about how humans can cause other animals to become extinct and how humans can poison each other and the world that surrounds us. When looking at issues of e-waste, it's crucial to understand the working conditions that people are experiencing in recycling sites. The harms to people's health that have long-lasting effects and get very little media attention. By examining what's on the ground, by being rooted in the world around him and in the questions that he has, Ravi has helped to bring light to many of these different issues using a variety of different methods. And I think that the conversation that we had together offers many different ideas and approaches for those of us working in all sorts of different areas who want to try and change our relationship with technology and to improve our environment. Ravi's work both his art and his activism are incredibly inspiring to me as an individual but also to restart as an organization seeing how these different disciplines that he works in inform each other and the way that he takes multiple approaches and uses a medium like photography to connect with ideas about sustainability and people's relationships with the environment helps to remind us that, as Ravi says, we all inhabit the world in many forms at the same time. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at the Restart Project 
www.lazyfm.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communications assistant, Isabel, who did the research and planning for this episode. It's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.